If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me to Philippians chapter 3, the third chapter in the book of Philippians. We've been moving through Philippians now for a few weeks. I believe this is the ninth message in the series, and uh, it's been a great run through this. This is an incredible book of Scripture. All these, uh, Most of these messages, I believe, are on our website if you wanted to check any of those out, but we're just moving just consistently through the book sort of passage by passage and uh, uh, trying, to, trying to understand it in context as well. So Philippians chapter 3 is where we're going to be. I do want to make a comment while you're turning there uh, in regards to our um, to our choir. You know, they were out last week, and as Adam mentioned, they were up in the upstate of South Carolina and also, I think, in the North Carolina as well. And uh, it dawned on me this morning, Acts chapter 13, act, really while Adam was praying uh, right before I came up on the platform, Acts chapter 13, it tells this, uh, it captures the story of how the church at Antioch sent Paul out basically, essentially, as a missionary. And uh, Paul was the best. I mean, goodness gracious. I mean, you, you don't get much better than the Apostle Paul, and yet the church at Antioch understood the value of not just hoarding him to themselves, but sending him out to do what God had called him to do. And I thought about that passage when I thought about our choir, that God has blessed us with a group of people here who have such a heart to worship, and they inspire us, and they do such a great job of leading, Adam included, as he heads that ministry. But uh, how cool that a church recognizes that there's value in them, not always just being here every single week, but going out and being able to lead in worship for others as well. So that's a big, huge thanks to Adam, to our choir, but also to us as a church and understanding kind of how worship and ministry operate. So uh, I thought that was interesting. So how many of you have ever had the opportunity to tour the, uh, the headquarters of the Coca-Cola company there in Atlanta? Have any of you ever done that, right? Most hands probably, many hands. Are up. Well, for many of us, we're familiar with that drink called Coca-Cola. We've been drinking it forever. The headquarters there, right there in um, in Atlanta, Georgia, many have gone through those and seen kind of how the whole, the whole thing works. And it's just a fascinating tour. What you may not realize, however, is that Coca-Cola has been around since 1886. That's when the very first one was served. And for 99 years, the recipe for that original Coca-Cola, right, was held under lock and key. It was kept secret for 99 years. And easily, Coca-Cola outsold all others in the cola industry, pretty much set the standard in the cola industry until 1985. And for those few years leading up to 1985, what Coca-Cola experienced was a loss in market share in the cola industry, largely because of Pepsi. And Pepsi was beginning to encroach on their market share. Sales were uh, still healthy, but they were losing. They were losing ground to Pepsi as Pepsi seemed to be the one that in taste tests would win because it was a little bit sweeter. And so in 1984, the uh, amazing decision was made. It was uh, out of the blue. I mean, nobody really saw this coming except the higher, highest of higher-ups in the Coca-Cola company that in April of 1985, they decided to change the formula, the recipe for Coca-Cola. And so the old formula that had been unchanged for 99 years was placed under lock and key, literally in a bank vault in Atlanta, Georgia. And a new recipe was tweaked and rolled out for what would be called New Coke. Some of you may remember this. If you've got a can in your refrigerator, uh, please don't open it. Put it on eBay, okay, uh, because it is worth a little something. And so New Coke was rolled out. And, and again, they had done all of the, 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 the uh, taste test studies, and, and their feeling was that this was going to be wildly embraced by the uh, you know, by the average population cola drinkers. And so, and it was for a very small period of time. What Coca-Cola didn't see coming, however, was that the vast majority of people, even though they literally liked the taste of new Coke, they didn't appreciate that things had been changed from the way they had been for so long. So just a couple of months into the project, essentially, when classic or when uh, new Coke was taken off of the shelves, 
people began to voice their frustration. There was one fellow who actually filed a lawsuit against the Coca-Cola company. He was so enraged. 8,000 calls a day were coming into the call center there in the headquarters of Coca-Cola of people who were enraged and just absolutely incensed at what had taken place to the point to where 79 days into the project where the old Coke had been taken off the shelves, the recipe locked away, new Coke rolled out and stocked across the country and in many ways across the world. 79 days into the project, Coca-Cola stepped up to a platform, so to speak, and said, we're really, really sorry. And they didn't do away with New Coke, but they brought out what was called Coke Classic, which you may remember that title. You don't even see classic anymore. It was essentially, it was, it was literally the old, the old Coca-Cola. It was the old drink. And, and, and now today, you don't see New Coke anywhere. It came back for just a brief little promotional tour in 2019, but you don't find New Coke any longer. What you find is just the regular Coca-Cola. And when you go to the store and you buy yourself a Coke, this is what it's going to be. You know, there's a, there's a lesson to be learned there, and the lesson is very simple, and I think we already understand it. Coca-Cola learned it the hard way, that you cannot make a change or even a minor tweak to something without changing the very substance and the identity of what it is that's been changed. It is impossible to bring any small change even, much less sweeping change. You cannot bring the smallest of change, the most minute of tweaks, to something without the very substance and the identity of that thing being ultimately changed in the process. In Philippians chapter 3, what we find here is that Paul has moved through this letter to the Philippian believers, and he's, been, he's just been encouraging them all the way through. He's told them how much he loves them, how much he misses them, because he's locked up in a prison in Rome, there in Philippi, and he tells them he hopes to be set free so that he can go and be with them one day again. And he mentions them in the letter, he, he uh, encourages them he talks about how they are being commanded and, and, and he inspires them to stand firm in the truth and to shine like lights in a fallen world and to obey the Lord. He, he, uh, he gives them direction and admonition and encouragement all the way through this letter. He's reminding them of the humility of Jesus and how Jesus, even though he was God, didn't consider himself uh, to be, uh, didn't, didn't consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, that he didn't lay aside his deity, but he became the, uh, in the form of a bondservant. He gave his life for us on the cross all the way through the first two chapters. But then in chapter three, Paul's tone changes a little bit. Paul's tone changes and he begins to use this word beware, right? And, and, and it's not just him writing a letter. Imagine if you get a letter from somebody and they're saying all kinds of good things. Hey, I miss you. I wish I was there with you. Can't wait to see you again. Hey, don't forget, stay strong. Don't forget, do this. Don't forget, do that. And then when you read the word, oh, and by the way, beware, your, your antenna is going to go up. You're going to begin to kind of lock in. You're going to listen in a way maybe you hadn't listened before. And that's what Paul does in Philippians chapter three. He begins to encourage not just them to walk with Jesus, but now he begins to lay out somewhat of a warning. And what we're going to see here in Philippians chapter 3, we're just going to cover three verses this morning. We're going to see a simple principle that applies as much today as it did 2,000 years ago when he wrote this. And the principle is this, that there is only one gospel. There is only one gospel in existence that ultimately leads a person to eternal life. There is only one gospel of salvation in existence, right, throughout history that can lead a person 
to a relationship with God that can lead them ultimately to eternal life. This is the issue Paul's going to begin to address in Philippians chapter 3. So before we start digging in and drilling down a little bit deeper, let's just remind ourselves of what the gospel is to to begin with, right? So if we're going to make this bold of a statement that there's only one gospel of salvation that leads a person to eternal life. Uh, Let's remind ourselves, and for some of you, maybe for the first time, hear exactly what the gospel is. The gospel is just the simple truth that all of us in our lives, as we stand without, without Jesus, all of us are separated from God. And the reason for that is because of our sin. We've all blown it. We've all sinned, right? It's in our nature. We don't have to take a course on it. We don't have to watch a movie about it. Just turn us loose, man. And we're going we're gonna to show real quickly, we know how to sin, sometimes in very creative ways. And so all of mankind is sin. And the Bible tells us that that sin separates us from God, that, that we're separated from him to the point to where we can't rightly claim we have a relationship with a God who even created us. There's no hope of heaven. We're not going to heaven if, if sin is what characterizes us. But what the gospel tells us, and the gospel means good news, is that God didn't just stay back on the corner side of heaven with his arms crossed, shaking his finger at us. But what he did was in his love and in his grace and in his mercy that he demonstrated his love and that even while we were in that fallen condition, sinners separated from God, he sent his own son, Jesus, God himself, to come and to die on the cross in our place. It was a perfect substitutionary, perfect sacrificial death that we couldn't provide on our own. And he paid the pathway for us to be forgiven, for our sin to be taken away, and for us to one day have, our, have uh, heaven as our home, and until then, a relationship with God that's never going to end. I mean, it's a really, really good deal. And the only way that that's put into place in our lives is, is that we choose, listen, is that we choose to lay down our sin, we turn from it, the big Bible word there is repentance, we turn from our sin, and we place our faith, we fall on the grace, the person of Jesus, and invite him to forgive us, and to save us, to take over. That's the message of the gospel. And all through the New Testament, you see that message ultimately hammered home by Paul over and over and over. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, for example. You can look at it here on the screen behind me. 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 1. He says to the Corinthian believers, he says, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preach to you which also you received, in which also you stand. Paul was with these Corinthian Christians for a year and a half. He says, you know the gospel I preach, verse 2, by which also you are saved if you hold fast the word which I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. And here it is, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to to the scriptures. Paul says, this is the gospel that I preached. Acts chapter 4, verse 12. Uh, Luke tells us in Acts 4, verse 12, that salvation is found in no other name under heaven given to men. No other name except through the name of Jesus can a person ultimately be saved. There is no other course to get to God. We even see elsewhere in the New Testament, in Acts, it kind of lays out for us in exact, precise terms. It tells us how a person responds to the gospel. Acts 20, verse 21, the believers say they were solemnly testifying to Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. The way we respond to that good news is that we turn, we repent, and we trust our lives to Jesus. And there is only one gospel that ultimately leads a person to salvation and into eternal life. There's not a multitude of gospels. Listen, because there are people that believe, there are Christians that believe 
that yes, I've come to Jesus and I've given my life to Christ, but you know what? If the Hindu kind of has their gospel and the Buddhist sort of has their gospel. And, and you know, the, the Baptists have their gospels and the Catholics have theirs and the Pentecostals have... You know, there's all these gospels that lead to heaven. That's called pluralism and it's not in the Bible, at least not in favorable terms. <laughs> there are not multitude multitudes of paths that get us to God. There is one path through Jesus, and it's called the gospel, right? There's nothing you can add to that. That's what we're going to see today in Philippians chapter 3. There, there's not, there, there's not this, uh, this equation of, well, Jesus plus. You know, there are some cult groups that they have addition problems because they'll tell you that, you know, yeah, we know God through Jesus, but it's Jesus plus. Jesus will get you to first base, but then you got to do this, and then you got to do this, and then you got to do that. Listen, it's not Jesus plus, for us as baptism, or for us as, um, as, as, as Christians, as Baptists specifically, I guess, if you want to say that, it's not Jesus plus walking an aisle, right? It's Jesus. That's the path ultimately to salvation. It's not Jesus plus the last rites from a, from a priest. It's not Jesus plus communion. It's not Jesus plus jumping through this hoop and that hoop and that hoop. It's not Jesus plus at all. The gospel is that we come to God by grace through Jesus alone, period. And there's only one simple message of the gospel. So in Paul's day, what Paul is doing, let's circle this back and start connect some pieces. In Philippians chapter 3, Paul is writing a letter from jail in Rome to the believers in the church in Philippi. They're gathered around probably in somebody's house, maybe Lydia's house or the Philippian jailer's house. And they're there. This is a congregation in the city of Philippi, a city of ten to 20,000 people. They've given their lives to Jesus, but there is a threat on the horizon. And in the letter, Paul says, listen, there is a threat coming. I've already dealt with it in the past. We're going to trace this in just a second. And I just want you to be, re- be ready. And I want you to have your antenna up. And I want you to, 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 to know how you're going to deal with this when it comes because it's coming. And it has everything to do with the purity and the single message of the gospel. So let's jump in. There's a little bit of backstory. So let's jump in. Philippians chapter 3. And uh, we're going to begin reading all three verses we're going to focus on this morning. And, uh, and then we're going to move through a little more slowly. So chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. So Paul writes and he says, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard for you. Beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the false circumcision, for we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. All right, so let's move through a little more slowly. Let's begin in verse 1. So Paul writes in verse 1, he says, finally, my brethren. Now, it's interesting, I'm not going to camp here because we don't need to camp here a whole lot, but I just think it's kind of humorous that Paul writes finally. You could tell Paul was a preacher because when he said finally, it meant absolutely nothing. He's got 44 more verses to go before he gets to the end, okay? So he says finally. It doesn't mean anything. It's like when a pastor takes his watch off while he's preaching. What does it mean? Nothing. It doesn't mean a thing, okay? So Paul says finally. He's going to go on for 44 more verses. He's going to say finally again in chapter 4, and he's still not quite done yet, okay? So he writes the letter. I'm sure when he said finally, and they're reading this letter in Lydia's house or wherever, probably somebody said, don't leave. He's not done, all right? So he says finally my brethren, there's a reminder, he's talking to the Christians, that's important, he's talking to the believers here, he says rejoice in the Lord. Now, some would say the whole theme of the book of Philippians is joy, and it's hard to argue that. I believe, at least up to this point so far, it's the gospel, 
uh, he hammers it over and over and over and over. But joy is obviously a theme that runs all the way through the book of Philippians. And it's interesting that a man chained to a Roman guard or Roman wall or both can talk about joy. And notice what he says about joy when he writes to these Philippian believers living in the first century who did not have all of the luxuries of life that you may be able to enjoy and that we enjoy. He says, rejoice, not in your stuff, not in what you have, not in your freedom, not in, in, in the people that you know or in anything. He says specifically, rejoice in the Lord. Right? And he reminds us, and he reminds these Philippian believers that your joy is not, it's not wrapped up in the things you accomplish. If you get a Christmas bonus at work, praise the Lord, but your joy is not tied to that. Right? If you get a, a, a new position, or if you make a new friend, or, 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 or you get a blessing that comes out of the blue, right? those are all great things. We thank God for them, but that's not where our joy rests. Our joy rests in the Lord no matter what. Even jail, uh, chained to a, to a Roman jail wall or a Roman pri- uh, prison guard, Paul could talk about joy. And so he says to them, he says, rejoice in the Lord. And then it's interesting, he says, to write the same things again is no trouble to me. Let me just take a moment and comment on that. But we don't know exactly what Paul means. He could be referring to what he's already said in the first two chapters. When he talked about standing firm, right, in the truth. When he talked about shining as lights in a fallen world, chapter 2. When he talked about obeying, maybe that's what Paul's referring to. Maybe he's referring to saying, I've already written to you about what I'm going to write again in the same letter. Or maybe Paul wrote more letters to the Philippian Christians that we don't have copies of. I mean, if there's a special that comes on after midnight, right, in the next few days about the lost books of the Bible, don't watch it. There are no lost books of the Bible. But Paul could have written other letters to the Philippian church that aren't biblical necessarily in nature. Maybe he's referring to that. We don't know. But what we do know is he says, this, what I'm about to say, is a safeguard to you. That word safeguard in the Greek means not to be tripped up or to fall. He says, so you need to pay attention to what I'm about to say in these next few verses because it's going to keep you from a world of hurt. It's going to keep you from face planting in your faith. And it's going to keep you from sending down a road that's not going to lead to anything good. So I'm about to write to you to safeguard, to help protect you, to keep you from falling, and to keep you from being tripped up in your walk with the Lord. Verse 2, he says, beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the false circumcision. Three times he says, beware of the dogs, of the evil workers, of the false circumcision. Now, let me, let me just say something before I, I, I jump into this next little segment. <clears throat> Whenever I preach, I like to try to preach and speak with handles to what I'm looking at, right? You know, I try to put handles to whatever we read the best I can. I'm not the best at it by any means and don't always do it really well. But I try to put handles so that we can take this book and not just know about it up here, but live it out, out there, okay, in our families, in our everyday life, workplace, But there are times, even though we do focus a lot on application, there are times where we just got to drill deep, okay? And there's a temptation. I'm just going to tell you, beware. I'm not going to call you dogs, you know, or evil workers or any of that. But I'm just saying beware because when we start to drill deep, sometimes there's a tendency to gloss over just a little bit. I'm about to drill deep for a moment. I want you to lock in, hang with me, because it's going to tie into what we're going to look at as we move through the rest of this short passage we're looking at today. So when Paul mentions the dogs and the evil workers and the false circumcision, he's talking about a group of people that we would know as the Judaizers, 
right? You'll see the Judaizers at different times in Scripture, but not a lot of people necessarily know a lot about them. You're going to know about them in just a moment because we're going to push, uh, or piece some uh, passages of Scripture together. You're going to get a good picture of who the Judaizers were. But in a nutshell, the Judaizers were people who claimed to be followers of Jesus. That's up for debate, right, for another day. They claimed to be followers of Jesus, but what they did, they were of a Jewish heritage, they were of a Jewish background. What they did was they would add other components to the necessity of salvation to the point to, the, to where they would say a person is saved by giving their life to Jesus plus they have to adhere, this is what the Judaizers said, this is where they got their name, they have to adhere to the Old Testament Jewish law, the Mosaic law in the Old Testament. Their belief was Jesus wasn't enough to save. You had to trust him plus go back and adhere to the Old Testament law, specifically as it related to circumcision. Now, here's why this is important. Because in the Old Testament, circumcision was an outward sign for Jews that they were followers of God, that they were in a covenant relationship with God. All right, so I know it's odd to hear this con- conversed in a church context, but understand there is a, a, a deep um, Old Testament context here. That, that particular rite of passage, so to speak, was huge to the Jewish nation. That, that's what showed them to be in covenant relationship with God. These Judaizers now come along in a New Testament context, and they're saying, oh yeah, Jesus, that's good, that's good, we need Jesus. But if you really want to be truly saved, then you've got to adhere to the Old Testament law. You have to also be, as in the Old Testament, you have to be circumcised. And this was was a new gospel. This was not gospel classic. This was new gospel. And you can't make even the most minute of adjustments to something without that something losing its identity and losing its substance. And that was the threat. It's interesting because when Paul begins to warn these believers in Philippi, he, it's as though he's saying, all right, this is coming. This, this is coming down the pipe, right? You need to get ready for this. They're going to show up and they're going to bring this new gospel. Why did Paul know that? Because he had already dealt with it a few years before in the region of Galatia. So go back with me for just a second. We're drilling deep. Hang in there, all right? There's going to there's be some application. Just a second. Let's go back to the book of Galatians chapter 1. Paul wrote the book of Galatians um, years before he wrote the book of Philippians. And so he's already moved through this experience with the Galatians. And now he's warning the Philippians. What did he deal with with the the Galatian believers? Take a look and see. Galatians chapter 1, verse 3 and verse 4. He says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins so that he might rescue us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. There's the gospel. Paul says to the Galatians, hey, greetings. Hope you're doing great. Grace to you through God the Father who sent his son Jesus to rescue us from our sin. Here's the gospel. Look down in verse 6. He says to the Galatian believers, because they had gone toe-to-toe with the Judaizers, and now they were being sucked into this new gospel. He says in verse 6, I'm amazed, he says, that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another. It's not a gospel at all, he says. Only there are some who are disturbing you, and they want to distort 
the gospel of Christ. This is strong language. Paul says that when these Judaizers, he says to the Galatians, when they've come in here and they've told you Jesus is not enough, it's Jesus plus circumcision. If you really want to be right with God, it's Jesus plus jump through this hoop. This is a different gospel. And I'm amazed that you've deserted the grace that God has poured out in your life. Look at verse 8 and verse 9. He says, let's just make this clear. He says, even if we are an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we've preached to you, he is to be accursed. As we've said before, so I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, he is to be accursed. He gets very specific later in the letter to Galatians. To the Galatians, Look in chapter 5, Galatians 5, verse 2. He gets very specific here. Galatians 5, 2, he says, Behold, I, Paul, say to you that if you receive circumcision, the context here is as a, as a component of salvation, if you receive circumcision, Christ will be of no benefit to you. And I testify again to every man who receives circumcision that he is under obligation to keep the whole law. You have been severed from Christ. You who are seeking to be justified by law, you have fallen from grace. Listen, it does not matter what it is. If a church says, hey, to be able to go to heaven, you've got to give your life to Jesus and then literally walk an aisle down front, that's 99% grace, 1% work. That's a really good deal most of the time, but it's not salvation. And it's not grace. Grace is 100% exactly what it says. It is grace. Jesus does not call us to a gospel of Jesus. Plus, we come to God through him alone. This was the issue in the Galatian church. This is what Paul had to deal with. In fact, around the same time as all this was breaking loose in the church in Galatia, maybe even, I would think, a little bit beforehand, this was an issue that the early church had to deal with. All right, we're still dealing, dr drilling deep, okay? So hang with me. Acts chapter 15. Flip over there with me. Acts chapter 15. This whole context was such an issue. Is our salvation through Christ alone or is it salvation through Jesus plus circumcision, plus adherence to the Old Testament law, that the early church had to deal with it? Acts chapter 15, this is so phenomenal how the Bible works. We get to see what went down in the, in the conference where all this got discussed. Acts chapter 15, and Paul was there. This is a lengthy passage, 11 verses, but I want you to follow with me through this and see how it all plays out. This is where the church decided once and for all, th this is the component of salvation. Is it Jesus or Jesus plus? Acts 15 verse 1. He says, now I make known to you, brethren, the, or, I'm sorry, I'm in the wrong, let me see. Is Acts in the New Testament? Okay, here we go. Acts chapter 15. <laughs> I've got like 41 markers up here in my Bible. All right, Acts chapter 15. <laughs> Some men came down from Judea and began teaching the brethren, teaching the Christians, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. These are Judaizers. This is the issue. And when Paul and Barnabas had gr great dissension and debate with them, right, they're saying, no, 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 this is not how this works. Well, the brethren determined that Paul and Barnabas and some others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders concerning this issue. In other words, they're saying, all right, we're, we need to settle this. 
Is salvation through Jesus alone, or is it Jesus plus? All right, so let's send Paul and let's send some others to headquarters. <laughs> We're going to send them to Jerusalem, and they're going to talk to the other apostles. They're going to sort this out and let us know what we need to do. Verse 3, therefore, being sent on their way by the church, they were passing through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles. And we're bringing great joy to all the brethren. They're basically saying, man, everywhere we go, these people who are not Jews, these Gentiles, they're, they're following Jesus. God is saving them left and right. Verse 4, when they arrived at Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all that God had done with them. But some of the sect of the Pharisees who had believed stood up, saying, it is necessary to circumcise them and to direct them to observe the law of Moses. So they're showing up in Jerusalem at the convention, and they're saying, man, things are going on. God is moving like we've never seen. People who don't have a Jewish background, these Gentiles, they're hearing the gospel of Jesus. They're giving their lives to Jesus. God is radically changing their lives. They now have eternal life, and the Pharisees show up while they're giving this nice little testimony, and they say, oh, whoa, 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 whoa. No, no, they're not really saved unless they go through circumcision, right, like, like those in the Old Testament. Everything has come to a head here. Now, verse 6, so the apostles and the elders came together to look into this matter, and there had been much, after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and he said to them, brethren, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, this is the early days of the church, that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe, and God, who knows the heart, testified to them, giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he also did to us. And he made no distinction between us, the Jews, and them, the Gentiles, cleansing their hearts by faith. What he's saying here is, these Gentiles were saved just like we were. Verse 10, now therefore, why do you put God to the test by placing upon the neck of the disciples, these new Gentile believers, a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have even been able to bear? But we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way as they also are. And what most do not even realize is that Acts 15, 1 through 11 is a hinge passage for the rest of the New Testament. If they'd have missed it right there, we would have been in a world of hurt. Hugely important little Jerusalem council that took place there. And what was decided was our faith is through Jesus alone, it is a gospel of grace. So you go back to Philippians. Let's move back. Let's start to apply it here for just a moment. Go back to Philippians chapter 3. Go down to verse 2. After the Jerusalem council happened a few years before, after all this stuff he walked through with Galatian churches happened a few years before, Paul says to them in Philippi, chapter 3, verse 2, this is coming, get ready, be on the lookout, beware, he says it three times, of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the false circumcision. He says, beware of the dogs. They're going to show up where they're not invited. We, uh, in our house, we have, we don't have have her, but there's a neighborhood dog that lives down the street at the end of the road. And um, this neighborhood dog is, uh, everybody in the neighborhood knows her, loves her, right? She just kind of wanders around, shows up where she's not invited, 
One day I walked out in the back, went in the garage, and there she is in the garage. It's like, what, what, are, you, what are you doing here? But everybody loves her. We'll be sitting at our house sometimes. We'll look out the front door, and here she comes late at night. It's dark. She's old. She's slow. And, uh, and she's just like walking through the yard all the way back. Don't even know where she's been on the island. You know, who knows? And she's just walking back home. Shows up where she's not invited. Paul says these, these people with this different gospel, they're going to show up where they're not invited. They're going to come to you. He says, beware of the evil workers, right? They are going to defraud the message of grace. It's an evil message they bring, that it's Jesus plus something else. And then he says, beware of the false circumcision. I think we've established kind of what this is talking about. But look at what he says in verse 3. He says, for we are the true circumcision, he says to the believers, the followers of Christ alone, who worship in the spirit of God, we glory in Christ Jesus and we put no confidence in the flesh. And then Paul even goes on, verse 4. He says, although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh. Next week, we're going to unpack what his resume was, and it's, a, it's pretty impressive. Paul says, it has nothing to do with my salvation. I'm saved by grace. So, you, you know, for us today, we may say, Brooks, this is interesting, but I don't really know how this applies to us today. Listen, if we really take a step back and take a look, there are a lot of different gospels that are running rampant today. Some of those gospels have made their way into churches just like this one, right? Just like ours. Sometimes what you'll hear is a subtle me gospel, right? It's a belief that says, you know what? I'm going to go to heaven because I'm a good person. I'm going to go to heaven because I know what I've done and I'm not perfect and I'll readily admit that. But you know what? I'm not like that person or that person or that group or that group. And in my mind, I've got this A-list of sins that are like extra super horrible and I've not really done hardly any of those at all. So I think my good, I mean, how could God not let a person like me into heaven, right? That's a me gospel. It's a false gospel. It's not the true gospel and it doesn't work. There's the plus gospel that I've already kind of described. It's this belief that it's Jesus plus. Well, I've been in the Baptist church for 30 years. Well, I've been a Catholic for four decades. Well, I was baptized. I walked an aisle. I do, you know, this and I do that. My grandmama was, you know, taught Sunday. There's all this stuff, right? It's Jesus plus. And the problem with that plus gospel is it's not the true gospel and it doesn't work. Because it's not Jesus plus, it's Jesus alone. There's also what's called the prosperity gospel. It's this belief, not in Jesus so much as a savior and as Lord, it's Jesus as lottery ticket where we kind of pull the arm on the lever that has the name Jesus on it. And if we pull it with enough faith, then we're going to get rich and we're going to never get sick and all kind of things are going to fall for us in pleasant places and everything is going to be the best life we could ever imagine. And if it's not, then it's our own fault because we should be trusting in Jesus as that kind of a person. That's not the true gospel. And it falls apart. And then there's the God to me gospel. <laughs> Where you say, well, let's, you know, let's talk about what it means to have a relationship with God. And the person says, oh, wait, 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 wait. No, no, I know you've got your, you know, who God is to you, but this is who God is to me. And they kind of chart out on this definition of who they've described God and sort of this caricature they've made of how they understand God. The only problem with that is God has already revealed himself. He's revealed himself clearly in a book with 66 chapters. And he tells us precisely how to have a relationship with him. And it's not up for us to be able to determine that on our own. He's already told us it's repentance and faith in his son, Jesus, alone that gives us a relationship with him. 
The God to me gospel is a false gospel. And what Coca-Cola taught us was if you tweak something, even in the smallest of ways, the thing that you tweaked loses its substance and identity. Man, what an awesome truth. (laughs) That the one message we needed most so that we could move from guilty to forgiven, from, from death to life, from sinner to part of the family of God, the one message we needed most to get us there into a relationship with God that lasts forever is the message that God delivered to us that is still preserved after 2,000 years. It's the message that through Jesus, anyone who comes to him in repentance and faith can be saved. What a beautiful, beautiful message. Listen, if you've got that relationship with God and you remember when you gave your life to Jesus, don't let any other gospel ever sneak its way in. Don't begin for a moment to think that God only loves you because you're good. Don't let it for a moment, don't begin to think that God only blesses you because you jump through the right hoops. Listen, Romans 8, 1 says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. When you come to God through Jesus alone, that relationship is firm and steadfast, not by your works, but by his grace. Praise him for that. And if you've never come to a place today where you've stepped into a brand new relationship with God, maybe you've thought to yourself, man, I can never be good enough to get to God. Why would he ever want to know, uh, have anything to do with me? Doesn't he know what all I've done? Maybe that's where you've begun to think. Or maybe you've thought, you know what? I've been good enough to have a relationship with God. I've always trusted in my good works. But today for the first time, that fog is cleared and you've seen maybe for the first time that, you know what? I don't have what it takes to have a relationship with God. But Jesus does. And today I'm ready to lay down my sin and invite him to forgive and take over and you're ready to do that then you know what if you pray that in faith God is going to hear you and when you say Lord Jesus I turn from my sin today would you forgive and take over he'll answer that prayer and a brand new relationship with God will start for you with heads bowed and eyes closed as we close out this morning after such a clear passage of scripture Christian, if you have a relationship with God today, would you take a moment right now to thank him for the beauty of the gospel, that he got that message to you, maybe through a mom or a dad or a grandparent or a, a Bible study leader or a pastor or a teacher or someone who, who brought that message to you. Would you just thank God today for a moment that he got the gospel message to you and that you're a part of his family today because of that? There are people all over this world who don't have access to the gospel message that he delivered to you. And if you've never given your life to Jesus, but you're ready to start that. You can pray right now, and there's no magic in these words, but you can just convey the faith of your heart. You can just say, Lord Jesus, I know that I've sinned. I believe that you're God, that you died and you rose for me. And today, the best that I can, I turn from my sin, and I invite you, Jesus, and you alone to forgive me, to take over, and to save me. You know, when we pray the prayer like that, it's not the words as much as it is the attitude of our heart. And it says we convey our repentance and faith in Jesus and trusting him alone that he forgives and he takes over. God, we thank you today for the beauty of your word. 2,000 years ago, Paul loved a church enough to write from a Roman jail to say, be careful because this is coming. And today we... We see different gospels all around us. We see the false belief that there are many roads to heaven when really there's only one. 
We see the false belief that somehow everybody one day is going to be saved, so live however we want. And Lord, that's not the truth. We only come to you when we give up our lives and surrender to the person of Jesus. But God, when we do that, life becomes what you intended it to be, full and vibrant. God, I pray thanking you that today perhaps there were some for the first time who've come to know you through Jesus. Lord, help us to walk in, to stand on, and to proclaim the gospel without shame with compassion, with humility, and with love, but without shame. And Lord, as we walk in it, may you get glory. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.